Ciao, everybody. Yep, I'm back, as I always am. It's your long-suffering host, Andy Roberts, back with more violent vulgarities on video to tempt your taste buds with. Welcome back, as ever, to the Nasty Pasty Podcast, and thanks again for wanting to listen to my ever-nonsensical mashup of multiple movies in search of faux controversy and outrage. We say that today's world is one that thrives on outrage and offence, where people are too simply triggered by seemingly non-offensive things that we all spit and jibe at each other, branding various people snowflakes and calling for people to grow up. Arguably, though, we've always been like this. Today, it's just easier to do the spiteful things in a more visible platform. Way back when, in the 80s, the UK government and the rubbish tabloids like the Daily Mail which, for our American friends, are the equivalent of Fox News, took all the offence for us, and instead forced us to feel the same outrage when they banned a selection of horror films on video out of a ridiculous namby-pamby fear that our children were going to become killers. Needless to say, they try to brush it under the carpet now because they realise just how fucking dumb they were. I'm not willing to let that memory die, and that's where the nasty pasty comes into play. I scour the era of the 60s to the 80s, the same period of time that the DPP drew their poster children of the moral panic from, and I choose alternative what-if titles, almost doing a mini-mock trial or test case to see how obscene this one is. Because quite frankly, there was a lot of material available to us, and some of the more questionable choices were put forward as bona fide obscenities, whilst other more shocking or lewd material was missed entirely. I mean, talk about grossly incompetent. On today's episode, we're back in familiar giallo territory, and there's not really that much of a connective theme other than the two that I've got today are fairly typical of the genre. Therefore, join me today for two typical giallo films, which include 1972's The Case of the Bloody Iris by Giuliano Carnameo and Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye from Antonio Margheriti. We're all well-versed in this genre of film, so let's get straight into our first example, The Case of the Bloody Iris. mysterious woman phones another woman who asks that she come up as she's alone. The woman then walks across town to a residential building where she enters a lift. One of the many other occupants of the lift discreetly dons some surgical gloves and when the passengers exit the pa- leaving the pair alone, the woman is attacked by the strange figure who muffles her cries with a tissue before stabbing her and cutting her throat with a scalpel. The lift then continues its ascent to the 20th floor, where three of the building's residents are waiting, Mizar, Professor Isaacs, and Mrs Moss. Discovering the body, they note that she doesn't live in the apartment building before alerting the police. 
Meanwhile, a camp photographer called Arthur introduces a man called Andrea to his top models, two girls called Jennifer and Marilyn, and he also mentions Mizar, who that night is working as an exotic fighter in a nightclub. Andrea is in attendance and shows interest in meeting her, while Jennifer faints after thinking she's seen a man called Adam in her studio, an abusive man who Jennifer used to be in a relationship with. Dismissing it as a hallucination, she panics when she sees an iris in her path on the way out, confirming that it was indeed Adam who suddenly confronts her outside. She used to belong to a cult involving irises that preached sexual freedom within the group, rather like the iris that has many petals. Jennifer, however, was not comfortable with having so many sexual partners and fled the group. She manages to escape again from Adam, who tries to inject her with something. Later the same night, Mizar returns to her apartment, nervous about using the lift. Once inside her room, she becomes aware of an intruder when a recording of her in the nightclub begins playing. The killer, however, knocks her out and places her bound body into a bathtub and runs the tap, slowly drowning and killing her. The cops investigate the murder, deducing that the first girl who was killed was a prostitute, presumably about to visit a client. Andrea is then revealed to be the building's architect, who has the lease on Mizar's room, and decides to rent the place to both Jennifer and Marilyn, who are looking for accommodation. The cops threaten the nightclub owner with closure if he does not give up the names of the members who attended Mizar's show, whilst Andrea helps Jennifer and Marilyn move in, only to be sickened when Jennifer accidentally cuts her hand, repulsed by the sight of her blood. Apologising, he settles down for supper when the pair of them hear a violin playing. Marilyn plays a prank, pretending that she's drowned in the bath, which angers Andrea enough for him to slap her and leave, encountering an enraged Adam on the way out. Later, Jennifer is attacked by the killer, but Marilyn dismisses it as a dream. The next day in town, Marilyn makes the acquaintance of Sheila, a flirty woman who is the daughter of Professor Isaacs from next door, whilst Jennifer goes home and encounters Adam who attacks her and tears her clothes off. The police commissioner, Enchi, interviews Andrea as he suspects him, and has him followed after Andrea travels to pick up Jennifer, who is obviously upset after her encounter with Adam. After a date with her, Jennifer returns to her apartment, only to encounter the killer who gropes her before trying to kill her. She flees next door into the arms of Sheila, who calms her down before her father arrives back, who says nothing, but goes straight to play his violin. Sheila accompanies her back to her room when Marilyn turns up, and all three of them notice a blood-stained iris on the floor. Following the blood trail, Jennifer and the others then discover Adam's dead body in a closet. Enchi investigates further and finds a letter to Mizar that was written by Sheila, who's revealed to be a lesbian who had a major crush on Mizar. Jennifer and Andrea become ever closer to each other and make love at his home. The next day, Marilyn is in town when the killer spies her in the street with a scalpel hidden inside his newspaper. Marilyn apparently knows the killer and says hi before she's stabbed in the gut and left for dead in the middle of a crowd. She stumbles towards Andrea, whom she recognises, and leaves him shocked when she dies, leaving her blood all over him. Freaked out, he flees the scene when the crowd believe him to be the killer, with Jennifer sobbing over her friend's death and the police in hot pursuit. He manages to shake them off, leaving Jennifer to plead his innocence in his absence. When she returns home, she hears a male voice coming from Mrs Moss's house, and investigating, she finds a grossly disfigured man who attacks her. Mrs Moss returns and throws Jennifer out, launching a slut-shaming tirade on her. When she's unable to convince the police of the man's presence, she receives a phone call from Andrea who wishes to meet and going to a scrapyard, she is spooked by a police officer following her, combined with cars falling down, and she runs away into town and bumps into Sheila. They return to the apartment building when the lift malfunctions and takes them into the basement. Walking through underground, the killer attacks Sheila, scalding her to death using a steam valve. Jennifer flees and is followed by a figure with a torch, and it turns out to be Andrea, who Jennifer now believes to be the killer. Commissioner Enchi saves her, but Andrea gets away. Mrs Moss suddenly notices that her son is now missing, and after Enchi informs Professor Isaacs of his daughter's death, he sadly plays his violin music yet again. Jennifer gets back home and immediately packs to leave the apartment, only for the killer to slip in behind her and attack her. Running next door to get help from the professor, she discovers the mutilated man's body from next door and a tape recorder, playing the sweet violin music.
the killer walks in, revealed to be Professor Isaacs, who murdered the girls as he felt that they were corrupting his daughter as he disapproved of her lesbianism. Adam and the man from next door simply got in the way of his affairs, while Sheila was killed accidentally, him thinking that it was Jennifer. Isaacs attacks her and knocks her out, and after disposing of the body of the mutilated man, he tries to do the same for Jennifer, only for Andrea to save her at the last minute. They fight, and Isaacs ends up falling down himself and slamming dead into the ground. She was a beautiful girl. Yes, she was. Did you know her well? Only by her photograph. We never actually met. Can you hear a violin? Pretty. Oh, yes. It uh, must be that retired university professor in the apartment next door. But before you told me, you'd never visited the building. Uh, no. The fact is, our office gets I don't know how many irate phone calls each day. And half of them are about the professor who plays his violin into the wee small hours. I came up here with the idea that you'd feed me. Marilyn, come on. Supper's ready. You call her or we'll be here till midnight. Marilyn, dinner's ready. Marilyn, come on, are you finished yet? Please answer. Marilyn, answer me, Marilyn. Have you gone crazy tonight? What's with you? Oh, God, this is where they murdered that girl, Mizar. Murder isn't a joke, for heaven's sake, you idiot. Hey, big boy, what's the matter? You act like you did it. <gasps> After that, it wouldn't surprise me if he made us move out. All right, I won't take baths anymore. Only showers. Oh, boy. He's strange, that one I'm telling you. Why? The sight of blood's enough to turn his stomach, and he won't let anybody talk about that black girl. Besides, he hit me. Pretty nearly cracked the jaw on oh, my ear. The case of the Bloody Iris, or its original title, Perce Kele Strane Goce di Sang Sol Corpo di Jennifer, which means, What are those strange drops of blood on Jennifer's body? It's one of three giallo pictures that came from a set born of a Luciano Martino deal, whom we've encountered before. The way to spot the three are mainly due to the presence of both Edwige Fenwick and George Hilton. Sergio Martino did these first two instalments, which were The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward and All the Colours of the Dark. Martino seemingly avoided the third, and so it fell to Giuliano Carnameo instead. Coming out in 1972, it was still riding the tail feathers of Dario Argento's Bird with the Crystal Plumage, so this film's themes certainly would have still been in fashion. Right from the get-go in this film, it has jello oozing out of the image. A slender blonde woman seductively makes a phone call to another woman, then walks across town, all the while followed and watched by a mysterious man in a car. Reaching an apartment building, she enters a lift, and when most of the passengers filter out, she's attacked by one of them, who stabs and slashes her with a scalpel. It's a great opening for any giallo film, and equally as stylish as one you'd hope for. You certainly can't accuse it of failing in the tick boxes of the genre. What follows is a rather stereotypical sequence of events for those of us well experienced in giallo films, but it's also memorable for another rather untraditional reason. Let's first though start with what this giallo has that you'd expect, starting with our victims. They're mainly women, often sexualised and free spirits. Most, if not all of them, end up stripping off at some point, only cementing the giallo influence of having such nubile victims. True to convention, we also have a black-coated killer whose face is obscured and the gloves are present too, though this time leather is not actually the material. Instead, they're kind of a shiny ochre-coloured surgical glove, which we'll reference again later. But of course, with this being giallo territory, where would we be without red herrings? There are plenty to nibble on here, ranging from the most obvious, like Andrea or the vile Adam, to the less obvious but still suspicious, such as the camp photographer Arthur or the elderly Mrs Moss. 
the police are your usual level of incompetent, but the pair of jokers in this example do take the whole biscuit. You've got your misogyny cropping up again, awful homosexual stereotypes, 1970s fashions or disasters as they're more likely to be, point of view shots, tape recorders, cults. It's pretty much a cherry picking of the genre's tried and trusted, mom approved, federally mandated tropes. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing as we'll soon see. While the story is not particularly imaginative and there's little flourishes that we haven't seen elsewhere, Case of the Bloody Iris excels where some jally don't because of its approach to its well-worn tropes. Instead of focusing too much on the violence or the eroticism or the critical commentary, it weaves a little of all of them in a wonderfully humour-filled magic spell. Yeah, this film is actually really fun because of how silly and humorous it is. While I understand that most Jalo films do have an element of campness to them for their frequently overdubbed hysterical jiving performances, there's just too much purposeful script nonsense for it to just be mere mistranslations. I'll go through the different elements of humour, though, as we dissect the remaining film. So, while the story's not too fresh, so we say, the characters are lively, daft and memorable. Our heroine in this instance is Jennifer, who's both simultaneously resilient and daring, but also quite hapless and dumb. She's a model, which ticks off our hero in a creative job trope, and she's rather demure and chaste, considering Fennec is such a cultural sex symbol. She used to be part of a cult, one that involved irises, like that of the title, and as a result of her drug-laden, orgy-heavy history, she understandably now wants to tone it down a bit and leave her old life behind. Whether this dichotomy is on purpose or not is unknown, but it would go far to explain some of her behaviours, such as being completely okay with moving into an apartment where someone she knows has just been killed, and even encountering the said killer more than one occasion. Instead of acting like a normal whoever and calling the police, she not only stays in the apartment, but she continues to leave her windows open, practically inviting further menace from the murderer. Then the next minute, she's brazen enough to break into the next-door neighbours to investigate a strange noise. Though, arguably, the script certainly makes it easy by having her own house key be able to open a neighbour's house. I mean, what kind of alternate universe allows your own house key to open the neighbours? That aside, she also clearly manages to escape her violent ex, Adam, as he attacks her in her apartment, and tears her clothes off, so she's clearly resourceful, but... Then she rather daftly flees a scrapyard after a couple of cars mysteriously move and make noise. Andrea also has the strange dissonance. He's an architect, so you've got to be some kind of intelligent, right? So why ambiguously meet up in a scrapyard when the stakes are so high? I mean, the police are after you for murder for Pete's sake. The police officers, though, as to be expected, are horrendously incompetent, with Enchi only being interested in stamp collecting and stealing them from victims' houses, no less. He and his goofy buddy literally only seem to be interested in closing the case as soon as possible, pursuing the clearly obvious crimson fishy of Andrea. Just to show how hilariously bad they are at their job, there's a really stupid moment where Enchi actually wants Jennifer to stay in the apartment in order to bait the killer, but then literally abandons her there and doesn't make any proactive attempt at catching the murderer. There's no stakeout, there's no police presence, just nothing. It's like he's literally forgotten what he's just told her. Best friend Marilyn, though, is one of the funniest elements of the film, simply because she's consistently inappropriate. She spouts ludicrous lines like, you made a big mistake going from group sex to a vow of chastity, and in one scene, which is probably the most ridiculous, is that she pretends to have been murdered in the bathtub, only to then pop up when Andrea is near and cheerfully chant, Eek, I'm a ghost! She then gets a face-mashing, yet another Italian staple, from Andrea as a punishment, and she rather oddly brushes it off, even though she claims to have a broken jaw. Mrs Moss is also quite a funny old biddy, especially when she goes from being quite a mild-mannered but a curious old lady, to launching a furious slut-shaming tirade against Jennifer when she's attacked by Mrs Moss's son. How dare you enter my house, you little slut! Go ahead, call the police. That man murdered those poor girls. But... How could you go on holding that monster under your protection? No, don't you dare say that. My son never harmed anybody, you whore. He understands what whores you are. My son understands what awful creatures you are. You lech. Inside you're as rotten as my son's <gasps> scarred face. And you try to hide your filth under all these pretty dresses. 
You stink with perfume. You cover your face with paint. You're the drug addicts, murderers. Leave my son alone. You hear, you filthy whore? Other characters, like the lesbian Sheila, are also rather humorous, though quite offensively stereotyped as a predator. I mean, for example, when an almost undressed Jennifer is attacked and then groped by the killer, she runs to Sheila next door for help, but rather than comfort her after a sexual attack, she just exclaims, well, who can blame him? There's also the other slightly offensive stereotype, Arthur, who's an extremely camp photographer who spouts such nonsense as what sells beer is a bare-arsed broad. With such silly yet appealing characters, the film's subtext of female sexuality, its corruption and male control over it can slip right past you at first glance. While it's common to have quite a dubious outlook on its female cast, this Jallo film goes a little further to depict its issue with female sexual liberation. To talk about this, we have to talk about the killer, really, Professor Isaacs. His modus operandi is to murder women whom he feels have corrupted or violated his daughter Sheila. Sheila is, of course, a liberated woman, a lesbian who refuses to bow down to a patriarchal system. Whilst her depiction is a little problematic as she's so stereotyped as a woman-eater, shall we say, there's less subtle hints at her role in the story. For, For one, she doesn't get along with her father at all which is rather at odds with the whole nuclear family's traditional daddy's girl image. She also dresses in rather conservative masculine clothes, such as wearing a suit and a tie. She symbolises almost everything that an oppressive male mind would seek to destroy. Independence from men, both emotionally and sexually, a more personal ownership over her appearance, and a refusal to answer to men in all aspects of society. You have to imagine that this was, of course, the 70s, where the freedoms of the 60s have condensed and become even more socially liberating, spawning much more vocal and extensive talk of women's rights and liberties, a more visible approach to improving homosexual and queer identities, and the entry of sexual permissiveness entering the business world, with companies only keen to exploit sex as a big seller. Because of the teeny problem that Sheila is actually his daughter, Isaacs instead chooses to stamp out the filth that he perceives in her by targeting her interests, namely the nubile young girls that are around her. The unnamed prostitute at the beginning, for example, is literally going upstairs to Sheila so that they can screw. Isaacs dispatches of her in the way that someone who feels his sick daughter needs to be cured would. He dons medical latex gloves explaining their strange hue, and puts an end to her using a medical scalpel. There's something surgical and corrective about his actions, as though he's removing a troublesome tumour. There's the hint of a fateful nature of her encounter, though, as well, because it's both it both happens on the 13th floor, and actually at a moment where he could so have easily been caught. He kills Mizar, too, by drowning her, though she pretty much was an innocent party. Sheila had merely written a love letter, which was not really reciprocated. Mizar's role, though, in the story goes far beyond a victim. Her job at a nightclub was to seductively entice men to fight with her, promising her services and submission to any man who could overpower her. She was pretty much the poster girl for the professor's ire, daring a man to challenge her own female power and femininity. Marilyn, too, also defies these stereotypes. She has a slight flirtation with Sheila, and she acts whichever way she wants, which includes saying controversial things simply for the sheer fun of it. It's notable that when Marilyn is killed, in public no less, it's almost like a purposeful humiliation and a lynching. The professor also draws his scalpel from a newspaper. No doubt the conservative tabloids of the time would have looked less favourably on the permissive society that was unfolding before their eyes. So this little detail is almost like a slight insight about how political opinion would often be used to attack those who were becoming more free with their bodies. Even Marilyn's actions of dropping her many expensive bags of shopping, it's almost an indictment on the capitalist media who sought to exploit this newly sexually expressive woman as a selling point. As mentioned before, even Arthur is aware of such nuances, with his reference to selling alcohol using a woman's bare arse. The male victims in this film are exclusively because they got in Isaac's way. There's none of the film's misogynistic subtext that exists in regards to them. Of course, ultimately, these ideas do become reflected within Jennifer as well. Adam is almost her personal Isaacs, pursuing her with near-deadly insistence, angered that she does not submit to him as a sexual object in his own words. She, of course, used to be in his cult and engaged freely in the sexual doings that hippie cults would often indulge in. 
This, of course, is not enough, and the toxic masculinity within Adam is angered that she does not answer to him, despite her willingness to do so before. It's rather iconic that the symbol of the cult is the iris, which is a symbol of purity and chastity. Jennifer, of course, becomes more like the iris after she's left the cult, preferring to disengage with casual sex, and she dresses more conservatively. Well, when she's not working, of course. After Adam's death, which is preluded by a blood-stained iris... The original title of the film then begins to make a lot more sense. Now that Isaacs has her in his sights, the iris has become bloodstained. Jennifer, the pure white iris, is now covered with the dirty, sinful blood droplets. Symbolically, it's almost like a menstruation of sorts, with Jennifer becoming the woman that she wants to be. She's no longer virginal, but she's embracing her womanly nature. Notably after this, Jennifer's outfits soon become more and more similar to Sheila's, with some Japanese schoolgirl uniform-inspired fare, and she's even wearing ties by the climax of the film. In Isaac's eyes, she's probably just like his daughter, corrupted and becoming more and more intangible to the idea of male control. So metaphorically, he is asking, what are those spots of blood doing on Jennifer's body? Or more basically, why are these women descending to what I don't want them to be? The spiteful attitude towards women is also demonstrated in other characters, such as the Commissioner Enchi, who makes distasteful comments like, a pretty girl is never ridiculous, and it's such a shame to see your talents go to waste, when talking about Sheila's preference of women. He even suggests that she call him when she's feeling lonely, harkening back to that horrible male corrective viewpoint that lesbianism can be fixed by their own sexual performance, often against their will. Mizar's character is also subject to racism for various characters, with the insinuation that exotic girls like her can only be the object of someone's sexual fantasies. Even the curmudgeonly Mrs Moss gags in on the whole anti-women thing by scowling at the girls living in her apartment building and then launching into a full-on battle-axe rant at Jennifer, calling her a slut and a whore. Rather odd that really there's so much subtext in a film where it was really hard to take anything seriously. All in all, for Giallo fans, it's got enough snippets of violence, sex and ridiculousness to satisfy your Italian cravings. It's not the best, but it's certainly not the worst, and it's overall a rather funny, tongue-in-cheek example of what the genre was actually like in the 70s. French actress Edwige Fennec, who played Jennifer, was rather well-known in this sort of thing. She was actually the mistress of Luciano Martino at the time of filming, which is why she probably appeared in so many giallo exploits of this era. She'd also appear in Top Sensation, Five Dolls for an August Moon, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, Strip Nude for Your Killer, Phantom of Death, and much, much later, Hostel Part 2. George Hilton, who was an actor born in Uruguay, played the role of Andrea. Now, he'd been in quite a few spaghetti westerns with some other notable appearances in stuff like Hallelujah for Django, A Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, uh, The Case of the Scorpion's Tale, My Dear Killer, All the Colours of the Dark, The Atlantis Interceptors, and Dinner with a Vampire. Giampiero Albertini, who played the role of Commissioner Enchi, pretty much played the same role in the Poliziotesque film The Tough Ones in 1976, whilst Oreste Leonello had a role in Argento's Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Humorously, Arthur is often seen as a Woody Allen caricature by viewers of the film, and actually they're not too mad to think about that, as Leonello provided the Italian dub for the majority of Woody Allen's characters. We've seen the mesmerising Carla Brake before, who played Mizar, when we covered Torso around two weeks ago whilst Annabella Incontrera, who played Sheila, had popped up in a few Italian horrors here and there, like Blackberry the Tarantula and The Crimes of the Black Cat. Professor Isaacs was played by Argentinian actor George Rigaud, who played in Jello films before, like Death Walks on High Heels and All the Colours of the Dark. And he also cropped up in the Peter Cushing slash Christopher Lee horror film Horror Express. And he even made a slight appearance in Umberto Lenzi's Eyeball. Luciano Pigozzi, who played the nightclub owner, was actually a very common recurring figure in Italian genre films, having appearances in Barva's Blood and Black Lace, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, All the Colours of the Dark, Baron Blood, our next film, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, Syndicate Sadists, The Tough Ones, SS Girls, the Section 3 films Hell Prison and The Last Hunter, 
Exterminators of the Year 3000, Hunters of the Golden Cobra, and he was also in some deleted scenes on both Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 and Robo War. Finally, Evie Farinelli, who played the first victim, was actually a prolific production manager, working on various films like Island of Mutations and even Umberto Lenzi's Video Nasties Eaten Alive and Cannibal Ferox. Director Giuliano Carnameo started off his career as an assistant director in the early 60s, before progressing relatively quickly onto directing his own films. He's one of those who's dabbled in most genres, really, like spaghetti westerns like Guns for Dollars and A Bullet for a Stranger, um, some giallo films like Case of the Bloody Iris, comedies like Convoy Buddies, post-apocalyptic action like Exterminators of the Year 3000, and even sleazy, gory monster movies like Ratman. He unfortunately passed away, though, in 2016 at his home in Italy. The film was written by Ernesto Gastaldi, whom we've mentioned before on Torso and The Cynic, The Rat and the Fist, and many others. We've, of course, encountered the producer, Luciano Martina, before as well. And we've sadly encountered other producer, Marcello Romeo, before, too, on my personally disliked Panic. The composer of the film was the very much respected Bruno Nicolai, whom we've encountered before on Short Nights of the Glass Dolls, What Have You Done to Solange, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Jallo seemed to really be his specialty, as he did loads of work on Sergio Martino's offerings as well, much later. The last two crew members of note are two that we've also encountered before on other episodes – Namely, the editor, Eugenio Alabiso, from such things as Island of Mutations and Almost Human, and then lastly, the assistant director, who was none other than the director of Massacre in Dinosaur Valley, Michele Massimo Tarantini. Case of the Bloody Iris was released in Italy in August of 1972, hot on the heels of Sergio Martino's Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, and a mere few months after All the Colours of the Dark. This really was the era where Giallo had proliferated most of the Italian cinema, though notably it didn't seem to get theatrical distribution in the United States. It did make it into UK shores in 1973, though, under the rather odd title Erotic Blue, where it passed at Certificate X after cuts. Oddly for such a wide market, the film actually didn't appear on pre-cert VHS either, so it's rather unlikely that such a film would have been noticed during the nasties, and there didn't really seem to be an imported version available either. The first and only legitimate release in the UK was from Vipco in early 2003, where the film passed uncut at Certificate 18. This is currently the only way to see this version in the UK today, barring import in the US version of course, which is now out on DVD too. And despite Vipco going out of business later on in the noughties, the discs are still floating around in rather cheaply repackaged cases from the Beyond Terror series. So they're still around for anyone who wants to see this film. And quite honestly, the transfer is actually not that bad considering the usual offerings that Vipco have. So that was our first film this week. Let's transition into our next film, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. A man is murdered in his bedroom at a grand castle, all watched by a mysterious cat as the body is dragged to the cellar and tossed to be eaten to the bone by rats. 
A few days later, a young lady called Coringa travels to the same place, Dragonstone Castle, in the plains of Scotland by carriage, watched by a strange monkey-like creature. Inside, sisters Lady Alicia and Lady Mary, who's the owner of the castle, discuss the fate of the place, with Alicia wishing to sell the property and Mary remaining stubbornly against it. When Coringa arrives, Alicia tells her daughter about the unpleasant exchange she's just had with Mary, in which she's been asked to borrow Coringa's inheritance money due to Alicia being widowed. Coringa is then introduced to Susanna, the French teacher of James, who's Mary's son. Later, the pair go down to dinner and Coringa meets the evening's guests. Dr Franz, the therapist of James and Mary's lover, the local priest, Robertson, and Campbell, the butler. During the meal, Coringa playfully tells story of the McGreef family, where there's a legend that if one McGreef spills the blood of another member of the family, that that dead person will rise again as a vampire. When the orangutan creature pops its head in again, Coringa is frightened, only for the party to be interrupted by James, who insults Lady Alicia before mocking the idea of the guests in general, causing most people to leave the table and leaving only Robertson and Dr Franz. Franz explains that James murdered his young sister when he was just a child, leaving Mary to keep him isolated for most of his life. Mary vows to save her home from being sold at any cost, and soon after, a gloved figure sneaks into Lady Alicia's room and suffocates her to death with a pillow, all while watched by the cat. Coringa awakens to hear the cat meowing, and while looking around, she finds a secret passage that leads her to the corpse, the man from the opening sending her into a panic where she falls unconscious in the cellar. Campbell takes care of her, sending one of the other servants to inform her mother of her accident, where they discover Alicia's body, which Franz knows is murder. A funeral is hastily arranged, and during her internment in the McGreef mausoleum, the cat jumps on the casket, fulfilling part of the vampire legend, irking Mary enough for her to order one of the pallbearers, called Angus, that the cat is to be locked inside the crypt. Feeling that James may have answers, Coringa goes to his room and finds the orangutan amongst a huge collection of taxidermy. James shows her the rest of the room, and Coringa brands him lonely rather than mad, before she reveals that she's found a body in the basement. James implores her to go to the police, while Franz and Susanna scheme together after finishing a lovemaking session, planning to seduce James somehow. Later that night, Angus feels guilty about locking the cat inside the crypt, and opens it up only to discover to his horror that Alicia's coffin is open and destroyed. On his way out, he bumps into someone that he recognises, just as they slash his throat while the cat looks on. The cat then disturbs Coringa as she sleeps, causing a feverish nightmare in which she sees her mother return as a vampire. A police inspector finds the body the next morning and asks Franz to identify it, whilst Coringa tells both Robertson and James of her vampire theory. James, however, dismisses this, and kisses her. The killer sneaks into James's room and unlocks the orangutan's cage, while Jane goes to the mausoleum and discovers the state of her mother's tomb. While running away, she's found by James, who informs her that his orangutan is now missing. When they return, they make love, only to be disturbed by Lady Mary, who's looking for Franz. She then walks in on Franz and Susanna getting it on again, and she flees in disgust. Franz threatens Mary to tell James about the truth of his little sister, while Susanna tries to seduce Coringa, who rejects her. Franz then tries to gain access to James' room, and is then attacked by the killer who slashes his throat. In the morning, Robertson goes to fetch James and discovers that someone has killed James's orangutan, just before the police arrive and overhear Susanna, spitefully revealing that Alicia's death was in fact a murder. Due to the revelation, the police investigate the mausoleum and discover Franz's corpse inside the coffin instead, while Coringa notices one of James's cufflinks at the scene. Susanna walks in on Campbell with blood-stained clothes, who tells her that he's found the basement's corpse, while James explains to Coringa that the cufflink was there as he had to move the body from his room. When the police come for him, believing that he's responsible, James flees through a secret passage, and whilst hiding away underground, comes across a dying Campbell, who implores him to find Susanna, as she will know the killer's identity. The cat shortly enters Susanna's room, and she is swiftly slashed to death by the killer. Coringa hears her screams, and walks in on Mary leaning over the body, and runs away, believing that she is the killer. 
She runs into a secret passage and into the basement levels, where she suddenly discovers her mother's corpse. She's then surprised by Robertson, who advances towards her, claiming that Mary is now dead. When Coringa asks further, he reveals that he murdered everyone, including the real Father Robertson, who was the corpse from the opening, killed so that he could merely take his place. He explains that Mary was the one who killed her own daughter and blamed it on James to cover up the guilt, leaving Robertson to dub Coringa the only one to be undeserving of her impending death. He reveals his identity as a McGreef, saying that he needed to kill everyone else in order to correctly inherit the property. Just as he's about to kill Coringa, the police and James arrive and shoot Robertson dead before he causes more harm. Good heavens. Burning the Holy Scriptures brings bad luck. It's a sacrilege. A sacrilege? Oh, nonsense, my dear. You mustn't take it to heart. It's a great pity, of course, but unless you did it on purpose... No, of course not. So you don't have to be afraid, Mother. In spite of all our gloomy family legends. Coringa, dear, I don't think it's quite the thing to... Uh... Well, I don't really see what's wrong, Aunt Mary. As far as I'm concerned, quite absolutely fascinating, like that monster we have on the escutcheon. Now, that's a vampire. It's obvious. Please, let's not talk about it. Talking or not, it's still a vampire. That doesn't make any difference. That's just a chimera. A sort of fantastic beast to which romantic elements are linked. Yes, that's really enough, Coringa. It's really nothing to get excited about. The legend Father Robertson says that when a McGreef murders a blood relation, the latter does not die but turns into a vampire. Most amusing. Actually, I must say that some of these old stories are fascinating. Many of them you can even find an undercurrent of religion. And that's very true, but a pagan religion from the times when the gods disseminated terror rather than mercy. They spoke of monsters which became very real in the crude minds of that time. Coringa. Welcome to my house. I don't remember inviting any of you. James! James. Pray go back to your room. Mother, your priest could tell you that you pray only to God. Isn't that right? Campbell, at least bring me something to drink. But James, we didn't think you'd come down. Mother, you think too much. Being released in 1973, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye was again from that golden age of giallo, propelled into the spotlight by Argento's first outing, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. It was originally offered to giallo maestro Mario Bava at first, who was busy filming one of his own projects. As Bava had worked with Margariti on both special effects and directing together, he trusted his talents and therefore recommended his friend to take over the project in his stead. It was a French-German-Italian co-production, done and dusted in around two weeks. It may account for the strange, though refreshing approach to the genre's staples. Antonio Margariti's giallo offering is one of those rare beasts that's actually set in a large Gothic castle, bringing a period element to the usually specific 70s-80s vibe that these films usually have. I'm guessing that the period is supposed to be like the 1900s or something, but there are a few anachronisms here and there, like some of Coringa's outfits and her use of the term making out. This does then mean that the usual giallo tropes of red herrings and a black of killer with a straight razor are now in competition with lanterns, bats, rats, secret passages, dark corridors, family curses, candles, and all sorts of Italian gothic horror. It's an interesting combination to say the least, and the plot also lends from several sources which are quite recognisable. I mean, despite saying that the plot is based on a novel by Peter Bryan, who was a British novelist who wrote stuff for some of the Hammer films, it's likely that this was actually made up to give the film a more academic air of respectability. As it stands, the plot does have whisperings and references to other major, major gothic horror and murder mysteries, mostly from Edgar Allan Poe. Like, for example, the cat, Kitty, who witnesses the majority of the deaths in the film, is very much reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Black Cat, which features a cat which reveals a corpse in a basement, murdered by its owner after a string of intolerable cruelties are inflicted upon it. In this film, the cat is a harbinger of death, 
appearing whenever there's a murder about to happen, causing superstition to go amok when it jumps on a coffin, and it even leads Coringa to a dead body in the basement, much like its inspiration does. It also has trace elements from the 1961 horror film The Shadow of the Cat, in which a cat witnesses its owner's murder and then becomes the cause of several killings of people who wish to get rid of it. Far from being the only reference to Edgar Allan Poe, however, the plot point of Lady Alicia arising from the dead due to the family curse evokes the same fears and the realities that come to be in the fall of the House of Usher, while the presence of a potentially murderous orangutan kept in a locked room is more than a fleeting hint at the plot of the murders of the Rue Morgue. The Mask of the Red Death is channelled in the idea of a large party staying in a grand building only to be picked off one by one by a strange harbinger of death, with the multicoloured nature of the abbey in the story referenced directly with the distinctive multicoloured lamp that Robertson brandishes. James's devotion to painting, to the detriment of actual social contact, also has elements of the oval portrait. As you can see, there's a, quite a rich source of inspiration for the film's plot points, and this does mesh quite nicely with the usual jello tropes. Our main girl, Karinga is as much as we can expect from our heroine. I mean, she's relatively resourceful, she's game for exploring places in the pitch black, and she's inquisitive enough not to take things at face value. She also seems relatively intelligent, though in one of the most ludicrous moments, she throws her school books into a fire as she doesn't want to be too intelligent. A rather daft and stupid act, even for someone who's intellectually challenged. I don't know whether it's been introduced so ham-fistedly to make Karinga's subsequent susceptibility to the superstitions floating around Dragonstone more plausible. I mean, regardless, she does have some honourable traits, such as giving her cousin, the unfriendly James, a second chance, especially when it turns out that he's much more affable underneath the surface and actually has done nothing really wrong. I mean, James's first introduction to us is less than stellar. He's pretty much universally rude to all of the castle's guests, and he likes his drink to boot. We're told almost immediately that James murdered his young sister when, she was on- when he was only a child, which is why he's contained to the castle walls always, with a resident doctor on hand to control his behaviour. He's moody, evocative of many a Byronic hero, and he's quite handsome to boot. But this unfortunate mislabeling of him as somewhat of a pot-boiler maniac is rendered completely useless when it's revealed that it was in fact Lady Mary who killed her own daughter. Lady Mary too is somewhat of a very unpleasant dual-natured player in the drama. She at first seemingly welcomes her guests quite nicely, especially her niece Coringa, but then has understandable fears of losing her home due to debts. After her requests are denied by her sister, Lady Alicia, she then seems to turn and become something of a schemer. It certainly didn't warm me to her to find that she's got some dastardly scheme to get the money from her sister anyway, and her act of sealing the cat in the mausoleum was nothing short of heartlessly cruel. Her lover too, Dr Franz, is also a rather crass, awful person. He knows only too well of Lady Mary's sin, but he plays along with the notion that James was the perpetrator, as well as scheming with the licentious Susanna to gain the money for himself. Susanna is also a sultry seductress, not really around to help James with his French lessons. Actually though, now that I think about it, yes she was, but not in the literal sense. Robertson seems to be the only one, initially at least, who has no ulterior motive. What I'm trying to say is that despite the change in tactic of having a sweeping backdrop of gothic ambience, the characters are still just as unpleasant as you'd expect in a giallo film. They kind of evoke the period as much as our folks from the first movie. I mean, the 70s was, as mentioned before, a great period of social change, which brought about improvements to LGBT and females in general. This can be seen in the freedom that Karinga presents. She's unashamed that she's been thrown out of school for making out with a boy, and she throws her books and Bible away, albeit accidentally. Even Susanna, who has more proclivities for the female gender, is representative of the LGBT community that was becoming more and more visible at the time. Several countries in Europe were also suffering a financial crisis during the 70s, which is sort of referenced indirectly by the financial woes that Mary seems to be suffering. Now that we know a little bit about the characters, let's focus on the actual killer, Father Robertson, or not as course, as the case turns out to be. He's an unnamed member of the McGreef family, out simply for killing off the family so that he can rightfully inherit the large castle. 
Not necessarily a bad plan, though his motive is clearly torn from Mario Barber's script, Bay of Blood, and his identity as a priest is not unlike Don't Torture a Duckling from the year prior. In fact, the film does its best to distract you from the rather simple motivations for such killings. Instead of focusing on people's greed and plain avarice with each other, much more attention is focused on the absurd family legend, that one McGrief killing off one of their own results in the deceased returning to life as a vampire. This thread is explored quite a lot, such as Karinga's nightmarish vision of just such an event happening, as well as her mother's coffin being torn open and the corpse mysteriously absent. The superstition of the cat landing on her coffin, the notion that an orangutan may be the killer, and the sly subtle hints that James too may be even one of the blood-sucking undead due to his mannerisms, style of dress, and Karinga's strange two-pronged wound on her neck. The featuring of other traditional elements such as a vast network of catacombs under the house, infested with rats and bats, wall carvings of demonic creatures, all that sort of stuff, it all contributes to this supernatural, fantastical explanation for the killings. Of course, it all just turns out to be a major distraction from the quite basic explanation for the murders. The characters, or more accurately, Karinga's insistence on indulging the unrealistic solution to the mystery, actually functions as one of the biggest red herrings of them all. A slight clue to the solution's nature is found from Karinga herself, as the camera zooms in on her burned Bible quite early in the film, almost trying to tell you that the religion or any sort of mysticism has nothing to do with this sequence of events whatsoever. Overall, though, I have to say I didn't enjoy this one as much as I have others. Apart from the opening sequence, which has quite an interesting decomposed corpse being eaten by rats, the rest of proceedings ambles along at a rather languid, bloodless pace. It's quite a talky one, this one, and though the gothic scenery and the set pieces are enjoyable to wade in, the rather toned-down feel to the killings is a little hard to swallow. Some elements make your antennae prick up, like the little detail of the multicoloured lamps starting and ending the film, and the sequence of the killer trying to gain access to Karinga's room using a cutthroat razor to lift the latch is almost perfectly recreated in Dario Argento's Suspiria much later. It's not a particularly tense film, though, either when it comes to the deaths, as they're almost always prefaced by the appearance of the cat Kitty, so you're pretty much expecting a death whenever he turns up. It's not that it's a bad film necessarily, it just doesn't rise to any amazing level either, and giallo films of this level are a bit of a penny a dozen. It's a competent, acceptable job, and you could certainly do worse, but it's probably not going to blow your socks off. Karinga was played by British actress Jane Birkin, who was actually already rather famous for her duet song, Je t'aime moi non plus, and she performed this with her then-boyfriend at the time, Serge Gainsbourg, who also appears as the Scottish police inspector, as a matter of fact. Birkin and Gainsbourg would later give birth to Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's famously appeared in Lars von Trier's works. But anyway, back to Jane Birkin herself, though. She's been in quite a few things, like Death on the Nile, uh, Evil Under the Sun, and she was also in Blow Up as well. American actor Hiram Keller, who played James, had appeared in stuff like Night of the Flowers and Smile Before Death, while Francoise Christophe, who played Lady Mary, had made an appearance in Eric the Conqueror, and she went on to have quite a long, successful career in French television. Venantino Venantini, who played the murderous Robertson, is actually quite a recognisable character actor in Italian exploitation films, such as making appearances in Emmanuel II, Emmanuel in Bangkok, Terror Express, which we covered a long time ago, A Beast in Space, uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, Contraband, City of the Living Dead, and many, many others. The licentious Susanna was played by German actress Doris Kunzmann, who had few memorable roles, such as Eva Braun in Hitler The Last Ten Days, as well as a part in the truly disturbing Funny Games from 1997. I recognise Dr Franz as he was in uh, Where Eagles Dare, which is one of the few war films that I actually exceptionally enjoy. He was often typecast as villainous antagonists, quite often Nazis due to his rather Aryan features and his thick accent. He also made appearances in 1959's The Man Who Could Cheat Death, um, Iguana with the Tongue of Fire and Mark of the Devil Part 2. 
Dana Gia, who played Alicia, was no stranger to the giallo genre, having appeared in both My Dear Killer and The Bloodstained Butterfly previously, while Franco Russell, who played the unnamed priest that Robertson converses with at the beginning, has appeared sporadically across the Italian horror timeline, such as Blood and Black Lace, Naked Girl Killed in the Park, and, ugh, 1982's Panic. Finally, the pallbearer, Angus, was played by Luciano Pigozzi, who we mentioned from the previous film, The Case of the Bloody Iris. And as a minor note, the orangutan as well was obviously not a real one, and was played by one of the camera crew who was donning a costume. We've of course covered director Antonio Margariti when we did his film Killer Fish, and he was quite well regarded for his caring, friendly attitude on set. This film was no different, as his son Eduardo has many fond memories of helping his father in the editing room on this production, learning the skills actually whilst on a working set. As mentioned before, the source material from the script, credited from Peter Bryan, is considered bogus today. Margariti himself wrote the script with help from Giovanni Simonelli, who'd worked on Django Shoots First, The Crimes of the Black Cat, and Lucio Fulci's Cat in the Brain. Producer Luigi Nannarini had also worked on Fulci's productions like Touch of Death, Sodomer's Ghost and Cat in the Brain, as well as some production work on Luigi Cozzi's Star Crash. The renowned Ritz Ortolani did the soundtrack way before he'd composed the haunting overtures of Cannibal Holocaust. The cinematography was done by Carlo Carlini, who'd already worked on The Bloodstained Butterfly and then he went on to 1975's Black Emmanuel. Giorgio Serralonga, who'd edited 1965's For a Few Dollars More, was the editor of Seven Deaths, relatively fresh from his work on Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and he'd later collaborate with Margariti again on his video nasty entry, Cannibal Apocalypse. Finally, the makeup effects were done by Marisa Tilly, who'd worked on Mario Barva's Shock, as well as George Eastman's very strange, bestiality-themed Dog Lay Afternoon. The movie was released in Italian theatres in April of 73, where it received a rather respectable return. It was exported to France and Germany and many places across Europe, but outside of this market, the film wasn't really released in any of the other major territories, so it's rather an obscure film. It was so obscure, in fact, that the first time the US got to see the film was in 1986, when a VHS version was released by Prism Entertainment. The UK didn't even get this luxury, so the film would definitely not have been seized, as no one would have known about it. And because of the US copy, importers could potentially have got hold of it in the early post-VRA years, but it's a bit of a long shot, really. Officially, the first time the UK got this film was in 2016, when an uncut print was released by our good friends at 88 Films on DVD and Blu-ray. So, that was Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, and it's the last of our debauched duo for this episode. As always, thank you to everyone who's been listening. I hope you enjoyed my incessant gassing on about these films. If you're a glutton for punishment, then join us next week for another round of Nasty Pasty Fun. Out of the window goes the Jello film for quite a long time, and for the rest of September, in comes The Creepy Children. Next week, we're covering two cursed children films, featuring chilling chavies with various degrees of supernatural infection, clearly designed to cause havoc with other innocent people around. They are 1977's Canadian horror, Kathy's Curse, and 1983's shot-on-video British chiller, Suffer Little Children. 
Until then, if you've got any feedback on the two films that we've covered this week, the two that we're talking about next week, or even any that you've just heard us talk about, do drop a comment on our daily posts on either Facebook or Twitter, or you can send us an email to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com, and I'll see if I can mention you during the episode. But until then, take care for now, and I'll see you all next week. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.